Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 91st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So, good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Ready for Easter? I am ready for Easter, ready for a new quarter. So, we just closed the quarter out yesterday. So, we're recording this on um, Thursday, April 1st. So, prior to market open, prior to market open. So, markets are closed on Friday the 2nd and back to it uh, starting next Monday. I'm ready for it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so, as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for uh, the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And obviously, these numbers are going to be as of the market close on March 31st. So the month numbers will be uh, the full month of March performance and the year-to-date numbers, obviously, are going to be for the first quarter. Uh, S&P 500 index uh, was up 4.24% for the month and up 5.77% for the year. The Dow up 6.62% for the month and up 7.76% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 1.11% for the month and up 1.22% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index up 1.2% for the month and up 12.69% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 1.62% for the month and up 4.22% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.03%, two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury is at a whopping 1.71%. You know, as you went through all those stock indices, what was going through my mind is didn't really tell the whole picture of the volatility we saw in the first quarter, you know? It's kind of reminiscent of, you know, someone fell asleep on January 1st and just woke up, they're going to sit there and say, wow. Those numbers aren't that bad. Right. But you know, you actually live through it in a lot different. Yeah. Everyone thinks that it was uh, an easy quarter where people made easy money and, you know, they forget of, you know, some of the things that we went through, you know, throughout the quarter. And actually I have a couple uh, tweets that I want to talk about okay, that well, relate to that. So all right. Well, I'll let you continue. You jump in the gun again. Look at that. Today. I'm just reading your mind. Two peas in a pod. Baby. <laughs> So uh, some big news headlines, current events from the week, Matt. Um, During testimony to Congress last week, Chairman Powell once again reiterated that the Fed expects upward inflationary pressures, um, but that he believes that it's neither going to be particularly large or persistent. He also reaffirmed his commitment to communicate um, any tapering of the Fed's asset purchase well in advance, and we talked about this and what this means on last episode. So if people want more in-depth on uh, the Fed and their policies, you can go um, to the library and listen to episode 90 from last week. Exactly. Um, One of the things that's interesting about this, Matt, is, you know, the Fed's still on their stance that there really isn't any inflation right now, but we are seeing that in housing prices, right? So month over month, you know, housing prices are, you know, growing at, you know, 11% per month, it seems like. Lumber has tripled over the past less than a year, I think. So you're starting to see this stuff, you know, 
come into fruition. You know, flights are more expensive. There are kind of signs to me of inflation out there a little bit, but I don't know. What is your two cents on that? Is that going to last or if you think this is going to be a, a more of a couple month deal? In my opinion, I think it's going to be more of a couple month deal. I think a lot of it you're seeing in construction related cost is the bottlenecks of COVID lockdowns making its way through the system. That's my initial gut. Now, demand is strong, in my opinion. Now, let me tackle housing real quick. I saw a statistic yesterday that right now, year-to-date compared to year-to-date of last year, housing inventories, the number of homes that are for sale, are half this year what they were last year. And all that's doing is providing a tailwind on prices for those homes, Mm -hmm. right? It's just making it worse. Now, going back to your overall theme on inflation, my two cents is with all this stimulus money, you're going to see it peak, in my opinion, short term, June, July, and then you might see it start to calm down a little bit. But the people who are getting this stimulus money, statistically, are not saving it. And I think you're going to see a temporary boost in spending. You know, I can give it to you live. Earlier this week, my son's birthday, took him to Target, went down the toy aisle. It looked like the third week of Christmas. I mean, when you're when you're third week of Christmas shopping. Right. I mean, they were bare. And it just goes to show you where this money is being spent right now. And it's going to make its way through the system. And I think that's going to normalize. Yeah. And so I guess I would agree with Fed Chair Powell in that respect. But um, we can't ignore the fact that there are pockets of major inflation and i think that has to be talked about and it's like you can't sit there and just not talk about some of this raw construction cost it's insane right right and we know it because we're going through an office build out right now you were seeing we've seen this stuff so okay so temporary inflation till june or july that's my two cents time stamp it i'm coming for your head if it doesn't happen april 1st boom um next the other big uh issue that happened uh last week matt was the massive tanker ship that was blocking the suez canal so this uh evergreen marines ever given ship uh is a skyscraper sized container ship that got wedged shore to shore in the middle of the egyptian desert how does this happen i don't know and someone got the wonderful idea to get a like a cat bulldozer bulldozer to try to dig it out <laughs> it would be the equivalent of like you know having uh one of my kids like dig it out right right exactly so there were a lot of good memes and and tweets about that but you know that that was an issue for for global trade right because there's a lot of of ships that go through that canal every yeah. single day absolutely that, you know think you know, about the economic of how much go through goes through that canal every single day right right and it was finally freed on on monday morning but you know eventually this could further you know hamper a what i would call already tight supply chain um just like i was talking about a couple you know seconds ago right because it's already tight because of um you know winter's extreme weather and covid19 related shortages and raw materials and that type of stuff and semiconductors especially so this definitely didn't help that issue, no. right? So, and this doesn't help the the price or inflation issue, right? It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, you know, it's going to be an issue. There's going to be. I know automakers were in the headlines a lot over the past several weeks. They're shutting down production because they can't get the chips that go into these trucks and cars. 
and that's affecting people's wages as they have to temporarily shut these plants down. Mm -hmm. It affects the supply chain and all of those uh, vendors that supply the trucks. I mean, it's a domino effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why? Because it's a it, right, and this might be just me being simple, but it's a canal, right? Like we, like people made that. Why don't they make it bigger so that this doesn't happen? It's a great point. You know, it's a one lane highway. Make that sucker a two lane right, highway. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I don't know. It so just, it's crazy to me that this happened. But you know, you could see some supply chain uh, constraints coming out of that. But you know, that's going to be very short term, in my opinion. That stuff's going to normalize and come right back. Yeah, I just think the timing of it. You know, it obviously could have been worse, but the timing was not good. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next biggest thing, and I noticed this really yesterday, Matt, when I was preparing for this and when I went and, and gassed my truck up, is the average price for a gallon of gas in the U.S. Uh, rose to $2.88 last week. And that's up about one-third from the same time last year as the pandemic lockdowns kind of curtailed uh, fuel use. And it's possible that fuel prices will continue to climb as the economy opens up and, and, you know, cabin fever leads to summer road trips. But, you know, the other side of the coin is it's very possible that we're near a price peak. Um, you know, refineries are cranking up to full capacity uh, to meet the demand. So it's very possible that we see the price of oil come down. So um, it's not me or yours position to say which way it's going to go but as of right now you know gas is notably more expensive than it was a year ago today yeah i think one of the biggest factors in this that a lot of people aren't talking about is the extreme weather shutdown that we saw in texas recently and i think the um, domino effect of that two weeks is is dramatic on the supply chain for oil in derivatives of oil and i think it'll make its way through the system you know my two cents is these refineries you know these companies aren't stupid and they're going to be cranking at a hundred percent you know to, to to cash in on the atm on this so long story short i think it's just a matter of time before the supply chain catches up on this yeah and it's one of those things that i think there's a lot of people that have been asking the question you know why why are energy companies in the stock market doing so well right now. And this is another one of those things that makes sense to me, right? Oil, the price of oil is going up. So these companies are going to be just doing better because, you know, they're cranking up, like we just said, their capacity to meet this demand at higher oil prices. So, you know, theoretically, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. I mean, I can give it, I can give it to the listeners in a, in a very simplistic way in 30 seconds. The normal cycle of oil prices is this. Price goes up, oil companies swing that pendulum too far to the one side, they start drilling too much, they start drilling new holes, supply overwhelms the system, prices drop, all of a sudden the drilling of those holes don't make as much sense, so they stop or pull back, mm -hmm. you know, the inventory system equally, you know, equalizes, and then we wash, rinse, and repeat and do it again. And we're just on one of those cycles where... They weren't drilling as much the last couple of years because of softness in the economy, softness in, in prices. And now you're starting to see that pendulum slowly swing. But what I'm not seeing is rig counts really start to go up dramatically yet. So that, that is a factor that I think we haven't really seen yet. Right. I haven't seen massive amounts of new drilling yet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because the balance sheets of these energy companies aren't exactly pristine. Right. 
Right. Yeah, so that's going to be an interesting story to watch play out over the next couple of months to see how energy starts to perform. Um, so moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught um, our eyes, Matt. Uh, the first thing was a tweet from uh, our friend Ryan Dietrich on March 23rd. Um, and he tweeted, the bull market begins year two today. The good news is looking at the previous or excuse me, the the six previous 30% or greater bear markets since World War II, year two was higher every single time. The average return was 16.9% for the S&P 500, but there was a double digit pullback on average as well. And again, I want to remind people that this is only six instances, so it's a very small sample size. So keep that in mind. Um, but you know, year two of, you know, bull markets tend to be pretty positive. But the thing that I really want to point out here and put in perspective, Matt, is that again, to achieve this higher than average rate of return in the market, the average pullback from all time highs is double digits, right? It's greater than 10%. So this is just a good reminder for people that we need to have double-digit pullbacks to achieve higher than average rate of returns over the long run. We need periods of consolidation. You know, things can't go straight up. And when things go straight up, you know, <clears throat> I'll name some specific names here right now. And remember, listeners, this is by far a uh, point of recommendation. Put your compliance hat on. So, um, you know, think of GameStop, right? Went to the sky. Oh, this thing could go to 1,000, you know, and came right back down to earth. You know, just remember, you know, the, the quicker the move up, the quicker the move down. And you need points of pause or consolidation. And as you would always say, Mark, it's healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look back to all of like these 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 massive companies today, like like Apple and Amazon. They've all gone through period of times where they've lost close to 70 percent of their value in the stock market. It's Think true. about that. It's true. And look where they are today. It's true. So. You know, again, this is just a good a good chart by by Ryan that shows, you know, even even though the average return in the year two of the bull market, um, you know, after a 30 percent bear market is almost 17 percent. There is still a period of time where we were over 10 percent underwater. And see, this is exactly how active managers shine is because when these sell offs happen, a lot of it is emotional based. And active managers can look at it and say there is a dislocation between the price of this stock and actually how the company's performing. And that dislocation is how active managers shine. And I want listeners to remember that. Yeah. So kind of adding on to uh, that, Matt, there is a tweet from Charlie Bellello on March 22nd. His stuff's always great, isn't it? Yeah, and it goes really good with what Ryan was talking about. He said the S&P 500 is up 642% since March 9th of 2009. Easy money, question mark? Not exactly. There were 28 corrections during that time that was greater than 5%. Of these, 10 were larger than 10%, 3 exceeded 20%, and 1 was more than 30%. And obviously, the one that was more than 30% was in March of 2020, right? They all seemed like the end of the world at the time. 
So um, I'll retweet this on my Twitter, but I think it's good for everyone to see. It shows a chart of, you know, the S&P 500 index and then all of the corrections that were 5% or greater. And this is why we saw all of these bears from the great financial crisis come out of the woodwork every time we have one of these corrections, calling the repeat or beginning of the next depression. And people would listen to that. And then the market would rally. They end up buying back into the market at, at, at bigger highs. It's just corrections are normal. Mm-hmm. They are. They're very normal. And there was, you know, in each each instance, there was, you know, a, a reason associated with all these pullbacks, right? But, you know, if you if you just look at this tweet from, from Charlie, I mean, someone would look at the, so on the, on the, chart he posted two charts the chart on the left is just the s&p 500 from march 9th of 2009 got it chart on the right is all of the pullbacks and the quote-unquote reasons right but so if someone looks at the chart on the left everyone's like oh that's easy money we don't have to really live through for much volatility but then if you look at the chart on the right it's like oh wow yeah there were periods of times where we we pulled back between 20 and 30 percent but over that more than decade long period, S&P 500 up 642% since March of 2009. This is great to give listeners perspective because, you know, when you see these reasons, and I would highly, highly recommend listeners, you go to uh, Mark's Twitter page and, and see this this post because it shows the quote unquote reason for this, the various sell offs that you see. And you know, I can very easily put myself back into that time period. I remember the market narrative, right? I remember the emotions involved with it. And again, this is why having a disciplined investment process, a plan, not someone else's plan, your your plan plan is important. Yeah, very, very important. So, um, so that was, that was really interesting. Uh, the last thing I had, Matt, I want, to, I want you to keep going. Yeah. You're on a roll today. <laughs> I, I could. You could just keep going for like 30 minutes here. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears slightly to an update on the child tax credit for 2021. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to bring this up because I think there is a little bit of confusion about exactly how tax credits work with people. And again, this, you know, this isn't it, accounting advice. I'm not a CPA, but this is just um, knowledge that I wanted to share with people. I think this will be good. Regarding the child tax credit. I so, have three kids. I'm all ears. Yeah. Yeah. Originally enacted as a part of the Taxpayer Relief Act of 1997, the child tax credit was initially a $500 non-refundable credit that could be applied to eligible families toward their federal income tax bill. And Matt, non-refundable just means that the credit can only reduce taxable income down to zero and won't generate a tax refund for people. Got it. Because a tax credit reduces the amount of tax you owe dollar for dollar, right? So it's not like a deduction off of your income. It literally reduces dollar for dollar what you owe in taxes, right? Correct. So- over the years, this is, you know, has expanded multiple times. And in 2021, the credit is going to be fully refundable, meaning that you actually can get a tax refund if the credit exceeds taxable income. So uh, the maximum value of the credit per child uh, could be upwards of $3,600 for 2021. 
Um, so for the fat, the past few years, the child tax credit has been up to $2,000 per qualifying child and qualifying, uh, children have traditionally been defined as dependents up to age 17, older dependents, including 17 and 18 year olds and college students were eligible for a $500 credit. Um, so, you know, this is huge because this year, each child, including 17-year-olds, are going to be eligible for a $3,000 fully refundable tax credit. Come again? $3,000. And children under the age of six will qualify for a $3,600 tax credit. So think about that for a second. If you have three kids, let's say they're 10, 13, and 15, that's $9,000 that goes directly against the taxes that you're going to have to pay. And again, this is going to be for, you know, when your return is due in 2022 for 2021, this is when you're going to get this credit. Wow. Um, wow. Can I that qualify is, Louis as part of this too? Uh, the IRS might have an issue with that. Okay. But you <laughs> could always ask. The worst <laughs> they can say is no. Send them a letter. What do they call that? When you try to get a, uh, a special, a special letter. Right. Uh, Right. Um, so this is this is huge. This is this is a massive. big deal for for citizens. This is a big deal. Um, so you know th- this is going to help directly help put more money into families' pockets. As far as I'm concerned, absolutely. Um, and we might not really see the effects of this till Q2 of next year. Right. If exactly. you think about so it, so that's something we have to keep in mind as well. We can timestamp that too. Podcast ninety one. Mark bringing up child tax credit. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so this is, you know, I think this is a, this is a really good thing um, that that is going to help a lot of people. Until you brought this up, I have not heard anything about this. Yeah. So this again, this is just for 2021 only as of right now. But as we know, things that tend to happen also tend to stick for a while. So it wouldn't surprise me if this, you know, became normal for the next several years. So. Yeah, this is it's big. Yeah, it's big. So I will turn it back over to you. I got two and uh, two items for listeners this week, Mark. They're more observations than raw research. Okay. So the first is a retail trading activity update. Now, let me define that first for listeners. Retail means individual investors, right? People trading on their own. Okay. Through like an E-Trade or you know, Schwab, Fidelity, et cetera. Right. So this is a piece of research from um, Goldman Sachs on March 22nd. Okay. And it has a chart and this chart indicates that the daily average trades of us major online brokers, again, according to Goldman has risen from around a hundred million trades a day to over 250 million trades a day now compared to 2019. So 2019, average daily trading online brokers, retail traders, 100 million trades a day. We are now at a point of 250 million trades per day. And we're continuing to go up. So it's not just, oh, it peaked in the middle of of COVID last summer, quote unquote. It's continuing to go up. Now, I see a lot of advantages and disadvantages of this of this stat. I'm happy to see more and more people taking an active position 
with their finances, with their financial future. I think it's great. The other side of it, though, is I don't want to see people overtrade. I don't want to see people try to time the market on a short-term basis. That's my word of caution when I saw this. And I'd like to see what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, I think it's it's normal for us not to want you know other people to blow up their accounts, right? Um, so again, I think this is this is the first step in getting more people involved with the markets because I think you know two decades ago, I feel like the the vantage point was that the stock market is only for wealthy people where that's that's not the case anymore, right? You can go to any of these low cost broker dealers and place you know equity and ETF trades for free. So now everyone has the ability to get involved. So I think that from that standpoint, it's good. Um, but, you know, we're big fans, like we always talk about here, of putting a game plan in place. And as long as people are following their game plan, then that's fine. If, and if that is one trade per day, but that's their plan and they've they've planned out what they want that to look like several years down the road, then that's fine. Well said. I just, I just fear that, you know, a bunch of the people that are getting involved in the markets today have never experienced in 08 or 09 or you know they haven't experienced one day where the market is down 10% in a day correct and that those are risks that are going to happen again and let me let me address one more factor on top of it a lot of these online brokers are establishing accounts with margin from day 1 and it's so attractive to start trading on I'm not even going to use the word um, leverage. I'm going to call it for what it is, credit. Okay? So we are using, and I'll use the, the best analogy I can. Yeah, can you can yeah, can yeah you go into this a little bit? Because I think this would be helpful because I think people get margin confused with how it really works. We need to call it for what it is, and this is super important. So listeners, when you open up a lot of these online trading accounts, and um, I'm going to pick on Robinhood as an example, Okay. So Robinhood defaults to where you have margin from day one. Margin is credit. Margin is a way that you can take a loan against your portfolio to buy more stuff. Okay. Now here is the issue. If the trades go against you and the market value of your account drops, you have one or two choices. You either have to sell or you have to put more money in the account. Most retail investors are not in a position to throw money in the account. So what happens is when you take loans against your portfolio and it goes against you, it exacerbates or amplifies the losses. And people aren't used to that, Mark. And that's why I sit there and say, that's how people can quote unquote, blow up their account really quickly. Right. And this is a way that a lot of um, online brokers make a lot of money by charging you interest to take out those loans. Mm -hmm. Like to use the word margin, it's a loan. You are taking credit out against your account to buy more stuff, leverage. And my concern is that retail investors aren't educated enough. And if it goes, you know, if the tailwinds with them and the account goes up, it'll amplify those returns to the upside. Good for you. But my concern is to the downside. And I don't think there's enough education surrounding it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, thanks for thanks for digging into that a bit because 
you know, I think that there's just a lot of misconceptions about about what margin is out there. And it's a loan, it's credit. People just need to be really, really careful about it. And that's and that's the other thing. I, I don't want to, you know, you know, beat a dead horse. That's the other thing. I think I feel that people are jumping in right now just because it's like a FOMO thing. They don't they don't take the time to understand and really learn how to do this properly. And that's another concern that I have. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think about, you know, we recently produced one of our weekly episodes of questions with Matt and Mark. And one of the questions that you and I discussed is this recent uh, popularism regarding SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. And you see a lot of people speculating on these names that have yet to actually do anything of substance. And you know, if you actually read through one of those prospectuses, that's more scary to me than any horror film. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I mean, if you actually read the prospectus, how many people would then continue to hit buy on that? And I bet you'd be a pretty low number. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. So yeah, that's just another one of the concerns that I have. But all in all, I, I, I do think it is positive. That You're getting me on my soapbox. Getting, I know. It's funny. I only had one thing. These are just observations. And I'm like, I'm off. Yeah. the the I, I don't know. I might take horror films are worse for me than since back prospectuses. I'm not a, not a horror film guy. Hmm. I'm not either. Like The Exorcist. That I didn't sleep for weeks. Remember back in the day, Chucky of, the Clown. Mm, no, no, not cool. Not, not cool. cool. Children of the Corn. Yeah, that's mm. why I was so, I was so scared when the the whole clown thing was going on. Oh, yeah, the, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm not cool with that. No, I'm sorry. If I'm walking through and some guy tries to scare me, he's gonna get. <laughs> I can't say that on the podcast. Okay, I got one more. I got one more for you. So um, this is me just uh, continuing this theme, and I promise, listeners, I'll get off this soapbox soon. It's just I have legitimate concerns. So there was a tweet by the president of the ETF store, and this was just last week. And the uh, the title of the uh, the quote of the tweet is this quote: "It doesn't matter what your investment skills are because of social media. It's never been easier to become a promoter." Okay, and this was the picture that he posted, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay. Mr. Portnoy live streamed himself buying stocks based off the letter tiles he blindly pulled out of a Scrabble bag. Um, can you help me with the pronunciation of this other gentleman's last name? So it's Chamath uh, Palihapitiya, I think. And some people will call him by... <laughs> Everyone just calls him Chamath. Chamath, okay. Yeah. But $125,000 worth of call options on GameStop in January after telling his Twitter followers he would throw a few hundred Ks at whatever they persuaded him to buy. The rapper Snoop Dogg was credited with sending the price of cryptocurrency Dodge coins soaring after he tweeted an altered version of one of his album covers showing himself with a Dodge head. And so, in my opinion, this is just another reminder to be careful chasing the investment ideas of others. Just my cautionary tale for listeners, right? Because I, I, my perception is we do have some listeners that want to try to capture short-term trends. And I just want to throw that cautionary tale out. I don't want to sound like a dad or a, a preacher, but it's just, I think it's noteworthy and I just don't want to see good money thrown after bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just important to note that, you know, Chamath can buy, he bought 125 grand worth of call options on GameStop because he can. Yeah. That's he the equivalent of that. you or me, you know, going to Starbucks and buying a $3 cup of coffee. Right. Exactly. And it's like, I've, I've been in the same situation. Like I've, 
you know, been, you know, following along with some of these trends and, you know, I'll buy a, a call option in a person in my personal account here or there. And then it's like, I get so busy that like two weeks later, I forget that I even have it. Right. <laughs> so it's like, it's one of these things that, you know, you gotta be really on top of if you want to, pl- you know, play this game. Oh yeah. You got to babysit those, you know? Yeah, I know it's tough. So, so that uh, listeners, I'll try to be better in the future. I know I'm, I feel like I'm giving sermons here, but these are legit cautionary tales. It's my almost 22 years of experience coming out. So I apologize. <laughs> Um, so moving on to the last part of the podcast here, Matt, um, this week's financial planning topic of the week again, comes from a blog post written by Peter Lazaroff. You mentioned him before. Yeah. So we talked about him and saving for kids uh, on last episode, episode 90. Um, so he actually also wrote a series of blog posts that highlight the most important financial decisions to make depending on your age. And the first starts off with investing in your 20s and goes all the way up to things you can consider doing in your 50s before retirement. So I thought it would be nice that over the next few weeks, we'll take time to dive into each of these blog posts based on age group. Oh, each, each of these decades per Yeah, second. so until we cover the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And today we're going to start with the young guns, the ones in their 20s. Okay? Bingo, let's do this. So I think the the biggest point before we get into this, Matt, and I want to get your opinion on this, is that the earlier you start investing, the better, because you have more years to grow that capital. It's just, to me, it's just simple math. So I think the biggest piece of advice to people in their 20s is start as early as possible. And lock that account, quote unquote, in your head. Don't touch it. Right. Exactly. Just have it be whatever you're contributing it to it every month. It's just you're not seeing that in the form of income. That's right? right. Or the minute you get that 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 first big job that has a 401k, you know, start contributing, get that match money, etc. Right. And uh, Peter starts off the article with an example to, you know, to show how important this is, right? Okay. So imagine two college graduates with access to tax deferred investment accounts, which is like a 401k or tr- traditional IRA earning 8% per year. The first investor saves 250 a month for 10 years for a total of $30,000 and then doesn't make another investment for the next 30 years, another monetary contribution to the account. At the end of 40 years, the portfolio amounts to almost $510,000. The second investor doesn't invest for the first 10 years of the same 40-year period. Instead, they contribute 250 a month for the next 30 years for a total contribution of $90,000. But despite saving more money over a longer period of time, the second investor ends up with only $375,000. So that's a difference of over $134,000, right? So in my opinion, that's a lot. So the biggest piece of advice that I can give to anybody is start investing early and stay consistent. And to add on top of that, Matt, if you stuck with example one, uh, with having that person contribute $250 a month that whole 40-year period, Instead of the balance being five hundred and ten thousand dollars, that then grows to eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So big. the other part of it is staying consistent. That's right. Too, right. That's right. 
Um, so again, the longer time you have in the market, the longer time you have to compound that wealth. So I think that is probably the most important thing for, for people in their 20s is just get started. Yeah. And the other thing is I want to apply my plus 1% rule. So you start off contributing the next year, raise it by 1%, 1% the year after. You're not going to notice it with cost of living adjustments you get from your employer. And that will compound those numbers even better. Yeah. Agreed. Um, the next area was to set goals, right? So you have your long-term goals, your, your short-term goals, and you have, you know, retirement goals. So if you're looking at this based on retirement income goals, Matt, you know, in my opinion, if you make a hundred thousand dollars in income and you want to replicate that level of income throughout retirement, then in my opinion, you need to have $2 million in all your investment accounts by the time you retire. Okay. So um, if you're, and that's if you're following the 5% withdrawal rule, right? So $2 million times 5% is $100,000. That's what I would feel comfortable recommending to somebody that they can replicate in the form of income. So you kind of have to backdoor it at whatever age you're at now, whatever income you make. If you want to hang on to that, you need to figure out how much in assets you're going to have to have by the in time the future. you retire. Yeah. Um, and again, this doesn't include taxes, Social Security, but it's just a rough starting point for people. So people can go and play around with calculators online with annual market growth. Um, you know, I would recommend doing a conservative 7% just so you're not, uh, you know, being super aggressive with this calculation. I'd rather be more conservative with it um, just to kind of see what you need to save to achieve those goals. Okay, so that's that's one thing. The other thing I wanted to talk about was was short term goals. So wedding funds, house funds, car funds. My opinion, Matt, you know, if this is within especially like a wedding or a house, if it's in within two, even three years, a large portion of that, I think, needs to stay in liquid cash because you never want to run into a situation where you have all that money invested in stocks and we go through a 50 percent drawdown in the stock market. That's happened before. And it's very realistic that it can happen again. At so, any point. At any point. So if you have that money earmarked for a wedding or a new house, and then a month before you have the wedding or the new house, that money gets cut by 50%, you're not going to be very happy. Right? So True. I think short term, you know, you have to separate these goals between retirement, long term, short term, right? So long term, uh, you know, obviously is retirement, college savings for future future kids, et cetera, invest that money, right? And be aggressive with it. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of goals, we always get the question of how much of my income should I be saving? And I think a very simplistic, realistic answer for a lot of people is I personally think it's a good goal to start with getting to the point where you're investing 10% of your yearly income. There you go. Thoughts? Agree. Um, so, you know, and then it just forces you to get up to that 10%, but then you've been working towards the 10%. And when you get there, you set a new goal for yourself, right? You're like, I want to do 12%. I want to do 15%. Plus so, one makes so it easy. Yeah. So you're always just increasing Every that, year. that goal. Um, so anything else on goals before we move on? No, sir. Um, the next thing that Peter talks about is maxing out your retirement accounts. So he says the best place to start investing, like you said earlier, um, is investing enough in your employer-sponsored retirement plan to earn a match. For example, 
If you have an employer that has a 3% match and your salary is $100,000, you'll need to contribute at least $3,000 to your retirement plan to be entitled to your employer's full matching contribution. Failure to make this contribution is like leaving free money on the table. Once you invest enough in your employer plan to receive the match, then work towards maximizing your contributions to other tax-advantaged accounts in this order. Roth IRA or deductible traditional IRA, employer-sponsored retirement plan, um, traditional non-deductible IRA, and then a taxable account. So can you just kind of touch on this a bit of, of why we think it makes sense to max out the IRAs before maxing out the employer-sponsored 401k with investment flexibility and all that stuff? Because I agree with Peter here. Yes. Um, but I think it's hard for people. They're like, why don't I just max out my my 401k? Why do I even deal with you know a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA? Yeah. I mean, from my vantage point, listeners, it's, it's, it's easy. Your employer-sponsored plan usually has a fixed or short lineup of investment options that you can choose from. Whereas in a self-directed IRA, you could virtually choose any sort of investment that's publicly traded or that's available through that type of account. So from my perspective, it makes a lot of sense to do the accounts where you have the most investment flexibility first, because in my professional opinion, investment flexibility, if done right, has the opportunity to deliver better returns. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So how'd you like my 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 careful choice? of Yeah, wording? no, it was great. I, I, I mean, it's truly I, 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 I truly believe that. Yeah, no, I do. I do, too. I do, too. And then after after you, you know, you max out your IRAs, you can go back and continue to contribute to the 401k. Absolutely. And the other thing that kind of falls under this category, Matt, is health savings accounts. So, you know, inevitably health expenses will come up. So people might as well take advantage of contributing money pre-tax and taking tax-free withdrawals to cover those expenses. I have a buddy that I just talked to yesterday that literally had a 20-minute procedure done. And just for him to be in the room for that procedure was $3,600. Come again? And obviously, it's the beginning of the year. He hasn't met his deductible yet, so he has to pay that. Wow, I'd love to know the annualized earnings of that person. Yeah. And that's just for the room. That doesn't even cover the cost of, you know, the person that did the procedure. $3,600 for 20 minutes. Yeah. And I'm not telling people that they have to max these out every year. Just put, put something in there every year oh, because yeah. inevitably you will have uh, things that you can use this money for and it's tax-free. Agreed. It. Okay. Uh, the next category uh, is putting aside money for a rainy day. So allocating some portion of your excess savings to an emergency fund takes priority over extra debt repayments or additional investing. Peter says in general, an emergency fund should contain three to 12 months of living expenses. So I'm just going to kind of give you my situation, Matt. I like to keep my emergency fund separate from where I do my main checking account. So that way, I'm never tempted to take money out of my emergency fund to help pay for my day-to-day -day living expenses. Smart. It's just psychologically Smart. that works for me. So each month, I automatically move a certain amount of money over from my main checking to my Marcus high-yield savings account. And this is just a great way to automate savings for emergencies, and it's worked for me. 
So it's like the beginning of each month, I don't even see it. It comes right out of my checking account automatically on the first of every month and goes to my emergency savings account until I have enough in there that I'm comfortable with. Very smart. Um, so I think that this is something that sometimes people don't think about it because it's not as sexy as investing, but this is one of those things that I think needs to be taken care of along with your budget before you start investing. So I agree with everything you said there, Mark. The only additional verbiage I have for listeners, in my opinion, is what you said about three to 12 months of living expenses. What I like to tell clients is that variation, in my opinion, depends upon how safe your job is and how consistent that cash flow is. You know, if you deem to have a very safe and stable job and your income is very consistent, I feel comfortable telling someone you can be on the lower end of that threshold, three, four months, right? If you are in a job that is, let's just say, a little bit more cyclical with the economy or your income is a little more lumpy, you get paid a couple times a year, you're a consultant, you definitely want to be in the higher end. And I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And people, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, until March of 2020, people had really no need for an emergency funds all the way back to the great financial crisis, right? We've never, we haven't seen that type of an event in a long time. So people just kind of tend to forget about it. But those who did have emergency funds going into March of 2020, I can tell you it was probably a heck of a lot more stress-free for that person than someone who didn't have that money saved. And one thing I'm going to be looking forward for listeners, just so we get a little taste of what the American consumer is doing. I know since COVID hit, savings uh, percentages of someone's income is through the roof. Like we're Mm -hmm. double digit right now. I'm going to be curious, Mark, in a couple of years, I'm going to talk about that in future podcast sessions, because you and I both know the American consumer is going to get back to its consuming ways. Yeah. And I fully expect that savings rate to come down. Back to single digits. Right. Right. Um, He says, don't try to beat the market. And, you know, just obviously the problem with that is that most investors tend to get in their own way by unnecessarily meddling in their portfolios. For example, selling in March of 2020 or selling in March of uh, 2009. Remember, listeners, it's time in the market, not timing the market. exactly. So I won't harp on that anymore. And the last thing is what I touched on a little bit is just making it automatic. So this is everything from your savings, uh, you know, bills, investments, put it all on autopilot so you can simplify these things. Um, And this way, especially for investing, you can dollar cost average every single month into your retirement accounts. That way you're not buying everything all at one price um, and you can take advantage of, you know, market corrections. Right. So if you're in an employer sponsored 401k plan and you're in your 20s, you should be begging for market corrections. Right. Because you're going to be buying in at lower prices. Absolutely. So remember, there are opportunities if you look at it through the right lens. Yeah, exactly. So just putting this stuff on autopilot, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind that you don't have to sit down every month and dedicate time to it. You just know, you know, it's happening and you can just review it once or twice per year. Yes. Type of thing. Yes. So I know this is a a little longer one here, Matt, so we'll wrap it up. Um, The only thing really that I have is that, you know, from everything I'm seeing, markets still are looking pretty healthy. Um, however, you know, small caps and micro caps have rolled over a little bit. Consumer staples has started to peak its head a little bit in terms of outperforming the general market. So that's something that I'm keeping an eye on because that's not typically 
behavior uh, that we see in bull markets. Again, this has only happened for the past two weeks, so it's not concerning to me yet, but um, just something that I'm keeping an eye on. Everything else um, does look pretty healthy to me, though. Um, One as thing we, gonna, as we go into Q2. Yeah, just remember, listeners, you know, we're in a period now, the beginning of the quarter, where most companies are in their blackout period. They're not going to be making a lot of comments. And I think heading into earnings here at the end of April, I'm going to be very curious how Bingo. some of these previous market leaders perform leading into earnings and post earnings. Yeah. That's my first comment. My second comment is next week, I would love to have our, our newest team member, Nick Whitaker on the podcast. Nick is our incoming um, director of portfolio management and in research. And his former life, he spent seven years at IHS Market, where he specialized in stock surveillance and data analytics. And he specialized within the sector of energy. So as you and I talked earlier about, you know, the price of gasoline and these refiners and these cycles, he's more qualified to really talk about that. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'd love to do is have him on and just get his perspective, you know, for five minutes on the cycles of the price of oil or the, or, or the refiners. And he's very knowledgeable about that. And he might be able to provide some further insight for our listeners on that specific topic. So I'd like to do that next week as well. Yeah. I think that's a Guys great a rock idea. star. Yeah. It's a great idea. Um, well, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the 91st episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope everyone has a good long weekend, and we'll be back next week for episode 92. Enjoy Easter. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.